And we're going to be in verses 4 through 10 tonight, and uh, we'll, we'll read this passage and then have a word of prayer and then jump into our time together. Starting at verse 4, it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment... And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul, from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this evening that we can gather in your house, and we pray tonight, God, that you'd use your word um, to work in our hearts, and as we continue in this passage uh, in 2 Peter, um, speaking of false teachers, God, I pray um, that that we would um, take this passage seriously, that we would understand that what was true then is still true today, that we would um, take these things to heart, God, to guard our own selves, to make sure that uh, we're not following false teachers or, or giving ourselves to things that are untrue. God, I just pray that you'd help us to see these things with your wisdom. And and God, we certainly are thankful tonight um, that we don't have to figure these things out alone, but God, you have promised us that you would guide us, that you would direct us, that uh, that you would give us wisdom that supersedes our own. And God, that's what we ask for this evening. So as we uh, look to this passage, God, as we see Peter seeking to um, grow the confidence of these Christians in the truth that they had believed, God, I pray that our confidence would be grown as well. Um, that we understand that we have believed the truth, that we would cling to that truth, that we would pass that truth on uh, to generations to come. God, we thank you that you uh, enable us to do these things through your spirit and through your word. God, I pray that you'd be glorified tonight as we study uh, this passage together. God, be with the uh, kids downstairs, both in the nursery and the, the children's classes. God, I pray that um, that their hearts would be stirred even now with affection for you, God, that they would um, understand at an early age uh, who you are and, and how much you love them and how much you deserve, God, to be followed and served all the days of their lives. We thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name I pray. <clears throat> Amen. And so as we look at this passage, uh, we see that Peter's continuing his teaching on false teachers, uh, but he, he does so in a way here that really begins to show that even in the midst of false teachers, in the midst of bad doctrine, in the midst of um, people trying to lure Christians away or, or keep people from believing the truth, God's wisdom is, is superseding all of that. His wisdom is, is far beyond um, the wisdom of the false teachers, and this wisdom is something that's promised to us. If we were to go to the book of James uh, tonight, we could see that James says what? If any of you lack wisdom, ask of God. And what does God do? He gives to all men liberally. And then what does he say? He upbraideth not. What does that mean? that God does not chastise us for asking for his wisdom. Uh, the opposite is true. He, he desires that we come to him seeking his wisdom, for that's when we'll truly be able to walk in a way uh, that brings glory to his name. And so <clears throat> the wisdom of God is greatly seen in this passage, and, 
it's, it's seen in the way that God is, is able to see the difference bet- between the true teachers and the false teachers. God is able to uh, see the difference between those who are actually leading people to him versus those who are actually leading people away from him. Now, does hum- humanity on their own have that ability? No. Uh, you read through history, and you'll see that there were many people who followed after false teachers. They, they drank the Kool-Aid, right? That's where that saying comes from, that there was a false teacher who led people astray um, to believe things that were not true. We, we see that uh, in, in cults. We see that um, in religious circles. Uh, and what Peter is trying to get across here is that God knows the difference. Why would that give these Christian conf- Christians confidence that God knew the difference between a false teacher and a real teacher? Why would that encourage their hearts? Anybody have any thoughts? Why does that encourage your heart? That God knows the difference between a false teacher and a real teacher? I think it Anybody else? This, this dilemma that these Christians were facing here, as Peter was writing to them, as we said last time, was not new, but there were false prophets that had arisen in the Old Testament, and Peter's saying there's going to be false prophets in your day, or false teachers, and if there's false teachers in their day, we understand that that probably is going to continue on into our day, and uh, we could spend time talking about and calling out who we think the false teachers are, um, but that at some point, would begin to be unprofitable for us, right? Because it would be better for us to, to acquaint ourselves with what the Word of God says so that we can uh, have a discerning spirit in those moments rather than just talking about who the false teachers are. But that's, unfortunately, oftentimes, that's where Christians find themselves. That's what they like to do. Let's just talk about what's wrong instead of understanding what is right. Let's just talk about who has gone astray rather than guarding ourselves uh, because if we're not careful uh, and all we do is talk about that which is wrong, we can find ourselves traveling down that same path. And so, uh, as I said, Peter wanted to give them confidence um, that the wisdom of God was perfect even in this scenario, and that if they went to God, God would give them wisdom to understand the truth as well, if we tie this in with what James says. But even, even if, if they struggled with this battle throughout the remainder of their days, which they probably would because the false teachers were so... Um, so good at what they did, Peter in this passage is relaying to them that in the end, God is able to separate the truth from the lie. God is able to separate those who were true teachers versus those who were false teachers. Uh, But I I think it it would be in part wrong for us just to glance over this like it wasn't really a big deal um, because it was a big deal. And these people were conflicted in their, their spirits. There was division in the churches. It was causing great turmoil because of what these false teachers were doing. And as it was true back then, it's, it's still very true today. And so while we're not as familiar maybe with this type of false teaching as, as they were, we have to understand that false teaching still exists and we should desire um, to, to be on guard against these things so that we don't fall in the trap or in the snare uh, that the enemy has set for us. And so as, as Peter is writing to encourage them, he's writing to grow them in their confidence. He, he wanted them to look not to him, but he wanted them to look to God. 
He wasn't just saying, believe me or, or take my wisdom as a final authority. He said, but you need to look to God who is the final judge and the great giver of wisdom, but also the great possessor of wisdom. And, and he wanted them to stand firm in what they believed, knowing that God would be able to separate these things in the end. As I was reading this passage this week, it reminded me of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. You can turn there if you want to. It's verses 14 through 19, so it's kind of a longer passage. Uh, but Paul says this to Timothy as he's writing his, his last letter to him, encouraging Timothy, strengthening Timothy, teaching Timothy. He says this, of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth canker or cancer, of whom Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and uh, overthrew the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. As Paul was writing to Timothy in that passage, he's writing about similar things, that there were, there were evil doctrines that had crept into the church. And he speaks of two people specifically here who had overthrown the faith of some. They had gotten uh, other believers to follow in their way. And what does Paul end that passage with? He said, in all of this turmoil, and all of this uncertainty, Timothy, you need to understand this, that the foundation standeth sure, that the Lord knows them that are his. And as that was true in Paul and Timothy's day, as it was true in the Old Testament concerning the prophets, we can rejoice that it's still true today. Now, does that, does that answer all of our questions concerning every teacher in the world? No, it doesn't. Because there's some who, who we could seek to follow after, we could be led astray by them, and, and they do it with such trickery that you don't even know you're being led astray. Uh, I, there's a guy that I used to listen to a lot, uh, he preached at several youth conferences that we took kids to uh, when we were at our church in Virginia. Uh, he then went from being an evangelist to uh, starting a church, and he, he was once very solid or seemed very solid. And then over the last couple of years, um, he's changed, I would say, 75% of his doctrine. Um, and you know what happened when he changed about 75% of his doctrine? His crowd grew probably by, I mean, their church was only 150 people, so similar to our size. His, his church is now at 1,000 people every Sunday. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because he, he was once a man who stood on the truth of God's word, and now he's gone astray. And, and if you want to know more about him, I, I'll share where he's gone astray at a different time. I don't want to take the time to do that tonight. Um, but it's heartbreaking to see somebody who, who once claimed to have the truth, now claiming that they have another truth. And isn't that often how false teachers work? They'll, they'll get in, they'll, they'll sneak their way in, and they'll, they'll seem like they're right where you are or right where the Bible is, and then before you know it, slowly and surely, they shift from the positions that they once held 
to a broader position or a different position altogether. Meanwhile, they're, they're taking people captive with them. And as Paul said about these two people, Hymenius and Philetus, should have known they were evil people just by their names. Um, they've overthrown the faith of others. And so as Peter is writing to encourage these churches, let our hearts be encouraged as well. Because even though we don't always understand, uh, in this passage and in that passage in 2 Timothy, we're, we're equipped with this idea and comforted in this idea that even though we don't understand, God does understand. And one day there will come a time of reckoning. And one, time, uh, one day there will come a time um, when truth is revealed and those who are righteous, those who are godly in Christ Jesus, um, will have a different end from those who were not. And so, resting in the wisdom of God, that's kind of what Peter's talking about here. And he gives three examples, and in these examples we see some familiar stories to us about um, false teachers or, or false prophets or, or wickedness in general that was pervasive, and how God dealt with those things, and how God was able to uh, decipher or delineate who was on which side of the matter. And so the first example that he gives is in verse number four. He says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. We talked about this a little bit last time uh, of that scene in, in eternity past at some point uh, when Satan rebelled against God as he rose up in pride. Uh, and the Bible reveals to us in a couple different places uh, what this looked like, at least parts and pieces of it. And we believe that in that uprising of Satan, he, he deceived a third of the angels and they fell with him. Uh, and, and what does Peter say here? He says when, that, when they rose up in heaven, God didn't spare them. He, he, he cast them out of heaven. Sometimes I think we, we like to think of it that, that, these, that Satan and his demons, they chose to leave heaven. No, God cast them out of heaven. Uh, he wouldn't allow them in his presence. And what does he say? He delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Uh, does that sound like pretty serious language? It does. Peter's talking about this reality that these beings who were once in heaven for, we don't know how long, but they were once in heaven with God, they were still able to be tricked, have, have the wool pulled over their eyes, and, and to be led astray from the truth, thinking uh, that Satan was greater than God, or at least desiring for Satan to be greater than God. But Peter reminds them that these who fell, these who God kicked out of heaven, that their, their doom is waiting for them, that they've been delivered into chains of darkness uh, to be reserved for judgment. Uh, Peter talked about this last time in verses 1 through 3, uh, speaking of the fate of the false teachers, how it slumbers not, it lingers not. It's going to be a swift judgment when it comes upon them. And the first example that Peter uses here is of the angels. And so as, as, as Peter is giving uh, these examples, um, he gives one first that is, is really close to God himself. Um, as I said, these, these beings, they dwelt with God in heaven, and yet God understood who they were when they rose up. He understood who they were before they rose up, and he cast them out of heaven, and they're waiting for that judgment. Now, Peter says here uh, in verse number four again, he's delivered them into chains of darkness. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Are all the demons who fell chained in darkness? 
exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep, Evan stole the words right out of my notes, metaphorically. Um, now, there are, there are some who believe that there are some of the angels who are uh, chained permanently in, in a place. That, that could be true. It could be a possibility um, that, that is um, happening as we speak, that there are some of these uh, angels or demons that have fallen who God has uh, in chains right now waiting for that final judgment um, but we also know that Satan and his ministers are roaming around the earth, that they are walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom they may devour. They present themselves as, as ministers of light or angels of light, deceiving uh, those who would be deceived. And so uh, as he talks about the future of these angels, uh, we, we can't just take that to mean that there's no evil forces in the world right now, because that would contradict many other places in Scripture. Uh, we understand that there is spiritual warfare and uh, I think it's something oftentimes that we don't pay enough attention to, uh, that there is, there is an enemy out there, that he is seeking to attack us, that he is uh, setting snares to lure us away. Uh, but uh, we understand, according to Peter, that in the end, uh, these, these angels that have fallen are res- have a reserved judgment waiting for them. Any other thoughts on verse number four as we talk about this first section? Does that give anybody comfort? If it does, why? Why does verse number four give you comfort? Bernadette. I think that's a good thought. Um, I, I think the comforting thing is that God knows those who are his, and he keeps them till the end. It's that idea of perseverance that we, we get to cling to because of the spirit that he's given to us. But it, it, it's certainly something to think about. Um, anybody else? Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I draw from it as well, just this idea that Though evil seems to be pervasive in our world, um, there's an end to evil. And even though we face this evil on a daily basis, there's hope for us who have believed uh, that one day the evil will cease. And I I think um, one of the most tragic scenes and and one of the most comforting scenes is um, the scene in Revelation where uh, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And um, the enemy is thrown in with him at that point. And as I shared, I think last week, you know, we often think and that there there are two gods in this world, that there's Satan, and we know the Bible defines him as a god with a little g, meaning that he, he rules or, or works in this world, but he only works with the power that God allows him to have. But then there, we think there's another god, capital G, the god who we serve, but we have to be reminded, and, and this is one of those passages that reminds us that, that there is one god, and the one god is over all things. And even though evil seems to be running freely at this moment, uh, it's not running freely. And, and we understand that in the end, these workers of evil, as, as Peter's going to get into later on, they have a judgment that is reserved for them. And so uh, another thing that that brings to my mind 
is that I don't have to I don't have to punish the workers of iniquity. That's not my job, right? We, we call out sinfulness, but it's not my job to judge those whom God is plenty capable of judging. And his judgment is far more severe than my judgment would ever be. I, I could condemn them all day long, but what does my condemnation get them? Probably not even a hurt feeling. They might like my condemnation. Why? Because it's getting them more publicity. Um, but God's judgment is final. It is sure. And, and we can leave those things up to him. Any other thoughts on verse number four? All right, so that's the first example that Peter gives us. He talks about these fallen angels uh, that, that have re, uh, a judgment reserved for them. The second one is one that we're familiar with. In verse number five, he says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, as we studied through Genesis just recently and we went through the story of, of Noah, uh, we understand that um, the story is very significant in um, some of the, the parallels that it has to what's going to take place in the future, how God is going to destroy the world again, but he's going to save and spare those uh, who are godly, and our godliness does not come through our efforts. It comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, but Peter uses this as a second illustration to reveal the wisdom of God. Uh, and again, uh, Peter speaks of the unrighteous or the ungodly. And what did God do because of the ungodly in Genesis? He destroyed the world. This was not a small thing. Th this was something that God created, that, that uh, the, the Trinity was, had involvement in, in creation, that these things were spoken into existence, that the people that died, what did we say as we went through Genesis 1 and 2? That they were made in the very image of God. And so this was not a small thing for God to say, I'm going to destroy the, the earth with a flood because his image bearers were destroyed in that moment. But the wickedness of the day had gotten so great that they had forgotten about God in such a, a grievous way that God says, no longer am I going to let it continue. Um, as, as Jesus speaks of... Um, the time of Noah in Matthew 24, he talks about them eating and drinking and getting married and giving themselves in marriage. And as I was studying for Genesis, I was reminded that the things that the world was doing were not necessarily wrong things, but they were doing them in a way that showed they had forgotten about God completely. They were going about life as if God did not exist. And would you say that there's much of the world that is doing that in our day and age as well? That they go through life like God doesn't exist. And, and this wickedness, and, and again, we don't know the full extent of the wickedness uh, that was going on, but the wickedness that was there uh, was enough for God to say, I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to destroy the world. And uh, again, uh, as, as we think through that account in Genesis, we understand that it was a big thing that God did, um, but it also points us, as, as I said earlier, to the reality that the world is going to be judged again. And we see in, in Genesis, we see here in Second Peter that, that Noah was spared. He was a preacher of righteousness. He preached through his faithfulness as he built the ark for over a hundred years, faithfully serving God, faithfully believing what God's word said. Um, but in the end, the rest of the world um, was destroyed because of, of their wickedness. It, it's, I think sometimes these, these stories in the Old Testament 
I think there's, there's times where we don't understand them in the graphic details that are actually there. Um, it's good for our kids to know about Noah's Ark, but it's better for our kids to understand why God destroyed the world. That it's not just a cute story of God saving Noah and his family, but God destroyed the world because, because God doesn't tolerate wickedness. He doesn't tolerate sin. Um, it's good for us to understand those things as well. And so as we think of, of verse number five, how God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, we see that he did this. He brought in the flood upon the world uh, of the ungodly. God destroyed them in, in his wisdom. And this is all uh, building to a point that Peter's trying to make uh, about the wisdom of God. Any thoughts on, on verse number five, the example number two that Peter gave here? Any thoughts on Noah? Dave. Sure, yeah, yeah, and we, we certainly understand that, that God um, repopulated the earth through Noah and his sons, and <laughs> yep, yep. Anybody else? Any thoughts? All right, we'll move on. Example number three, which is uh, a fun one for sure, um, in verses six, and, six through eight, he says, "...in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes." Condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those uh, that after should live ungodly. Verse number six, there's a lot there. Um, when you think about what God did in Sodom and Gomorrah and, and what Peter has to say about it. He did it for an example to those who live ungodly lives. Think on that for a minute. Verse seven, he says, And delivered just law, vexed with the filthy uh, conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day, with their unlawful deeds. Um, if we were to, to not have this passage on Lot, there would be a great conflict on where Lot was today because the fruit of Lot's life, as we see it in the Old Testament, does not reveal much of a righteous man. Um, it seems like a man who was engrossed in sin and allowed um, or in some point seemed to encourage even his family to be engrossed in sin. But uh, Peter... Peter does some, him some justin that, justice that we don't see maybe in other places. Um, and Lot's not the, the brunt of our conversation tonight, but I, I do think we'll talk about him some. Uh, but, but the third example he gives is, is really talking about this idea of Sodom and Gomorrah and how they were overthrown. This, this uh, account, uh, as we see it unfold, is seen in, in Genesis 18 and 19. Um, and the, the testimony of the people of Sodom uh, is seen in a couple different places throughout the Bible. Uh, one of them is Genesis thirteen thirteen. It says, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before uh, the Lord exceedingly. In Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, it says, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. And so as, as we couple those things together, uh, we can safely assume, and if we had time, we would go there, but if we were to read the account in, in Genesis 18 and 19, we would very, very quickly understand that the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, that place, that area, was filled with wickedness. 
Um, we know some of their great wickedness was the sin of homosexuality. Um, that's outlined for us in the Bible. But I like Ezekiel's passage better because it gives us a broader understanding of the, the pervasive wickedness that was in that place. And it wasn't just homosexuality. The, the list of sins that are categorized under them are sins that are oftentimes running rampant in, in Christian homes as well. That there's this lack of desire uh, to, to be the hands and feet of God. I'm going to read that passage again, the, the end of it. Actually, no, all of it. He says that there was pride. There was fullness of, of bread. What would fullness of bread mean? Gluttony or this idea that they didn't need any, any provisions. They could provide everything for themselves. It says that there was abundance of idleness. So laziness was pervasive. Um, moving on, he says that this, this was in her and in her daughters, so speaking of the whole of the people of the land. Um, he says they didn't strengthen the hand of the poor and of the needy. Now, that probably hits closer to home than we want it to at times. Um, he says they were haughty, so arrogant. And then he says they committed abomination before me. And most believe that that last one, the committing of abomination before him, was the, the homosexuality that was taking place that was so prevalent in that day. But he lists a whole lot of other things before he gets to that one. And so as, as Peter is giving this third example, um, he, he's, he's saying some things that were probably hitting close to home. Well, they could probably say with the first example, well, we haven't risen up with Satan against God, so we're good. And God hasn't destroyed us in the second example like he did the rest of the ungodly, so we're good. But when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have understand more of what went on in that day. They would have had the Old Testament writings to, to understand what these people were actually like, and maybe it was getting them to think about maybe the sins uh, that were in their own hearts at times. And so as Peter gives these examples, he does them um, pointedly. Uh, he does, does it somewhat perfectly because of how it draws in every, every area of life, and he does it passionately, I believe, because he wants these people to get the understanding of the wisdom of God. And you may say, why do you think this points to the wisdom of God? Well, think back for a minute. Who did God reserve in chains of, of torment and destruction? Which angels? The fallen angels. Whom did, who did God destroy in Genesis? The wicked. And who did he overthrow in Sodom and Gomorrah? The unrighteous. And so what's, what's Peter, what's his driving point here? That God knows the righteous from the unrighteous. They, they're nervous. They're thinking, how, how do we know? How, how do we make sure that we're not one of them? And, and Peter's driving this point home, that God knows the righteous from the unrighteous. It's back to what Paul says to Timothy. The Lord knows them that are his. And that's a foundation that is sure, that cannot shift, that will not fade away. God knows those who are his. And so what we need to do as believers is crave the wisdom of God in these areas. To, to crave the wisdom of God, not just about those who are outside of us, but, but we should crave the wisdom of God even about ourselves, that we should seek his wisdom daily. God, teach me who I am so that I can be more like you. I, I don't remember who said it, but there was an old-time preacher who said, the closer I get to Jesus Christ, the more I realize 
that I'm, I, I have a lot of room to grow in my likeness to Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? Like, I, I think sometimes we like to stand back and say, yep, I'm forgiven, I'm good, I, I've, I've got it all straight, I got my, my fire insurance, so to speak, I'm good, and we like to stay at an arm's length from God because it, it's easier for us to not have to see ourselves as we truly are. But what's Peter doing here? He's, he's drawing them in. He, he wants them to see not just the, the false teachers in their fullness, but in some sense he wants them to see themselves as they truly are, so they can uh, understand the ability and the wisdom of God in being able to divide or separate um, these two groups one from another. Um, as Peter continues on in verse number 9, he goes on and says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust, uh, the unjust unto the day of judgment to be perished. And so the as I was thinking through this passage, I'll be honest with you, I, I, as I read over it the first five or six times, I'm like, what am I teaching on here? Like, like what, are, what are we drawing from this? And then as I, I really thought through it, and verse 9 really hit it home for me, that Peter's relaying to them this idea of the wisdom of God, that as they're struggling right now to know who the, the false teachers are and who the true teachers are, the teachers of righteousness, Peter's relaying to them that God has it figured out. And not only does God have it figured out, but God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And so let's go back to the three examples that were given. As the, a third of the angels fell in heaven, what would that scene have been like? Anybody have any thoughts? Yeah. I, I think it, it would have been torment. It, it would have been in some sense, and, and it's hard to even put into words, but there had, had to have been some sort of chaos there as, as this rebellion took place, as Satan rose up and said, I want to be like the Most High God. I want to sit on this throne. I want to be uh, in, in God's position of power, basically. And as he took the, the third of the angels with him, as God cast them out, there had to have been a great conflict in the presence of God in that moment. And, and what that looks like, I don't know. I can't put it into words, as you can tell, because I'm struggling to come up with anything. But, it, but it, it was quite a scene, I imagine. Quite a scene. Any other thoughts on, on that first example? Yes, Heidi. Yeah. 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 Uh, qu quite a scene it must have been. Um, but who did God deliver out of the temptation? Two thirds of the angels. Two thirds of the angels stayed in heaven with God, and God spared them from that everlasting um, destruction and torment. So let's move to the second example of, of Noah. Um, as we said when we went through the life of Noah in Genesis, that the story of Noah is significant, but the significant thing in the story of Noah is God and God's graciousness. Um, when all the world was falling apart, all the world was, was basically driving themselves to hell, um, there Noah was. And, and he was a just man. He was a righteous man. 
and that was a gift of grace in Noah's life. And we understand in some, some sense that that spread to his children and to their wives and to, to Noah's wife. And so for all these years, uh, you know, God told Noah, We're, I'm going to destroy the earth. There's going to be a worldwide flood that's going to take out everything, everything. And what did Noah do? He believed God. And what was it? The Hebrew tells us it was accounted unto him as righteousness. So Noah built the ark for 120 years, and then the rain started to fall, and the water started to rise, and before that, God had placed Noah and his family into the ark, and what was that proving once again about the wisdom of God? That God knows how to deliver the righteous from temptation. He knows how to spare those who are his. That, that God wasn't conflicted in the sense, wondering after the door was shut, was there one more person? Abraham was conflicted. As we think about the story of Lot, right? He, he, he prayed, God, if there would be X amount of people who were righteous, and then X amount of people that were righteous, and then X amount of people that were righteous, and yet God knew all along who the righteous were. And so we're, we're conflicted, but God is never conflicted uh, because he knows how to deliver those who are his from temptation. And then, well, I guess we just talked about it, the, the idea of Sodom and Gomorrah in the third example uh, as God delivered Lot from, from that time of destruction, uh, we understand that God knows how to deliver the righteous from the day of temptation, but what does he say about the ungodly? He knows how to, do, to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment to be punished. Um, I, was, I was talking to Dave about this just before church, and we were talking about funerals, um, and To do a funeral for somebody that is lost is a difficult thing. Um, and who was it that you quoted? Was it N.T. Wright? N.T. Wright, N. T. Wright uh, said, you know, one of the, the best ways in those moments um, to deal with a grieving family and the loss of a lo loved one is to comfort them in this reality that they're now in the hands of a gracious and just God. Now, that's hard for... for for lost people to understand. But, but lost people in that moment are thinking only one thing. What? They're in heaven. They're in heaven. But in that statement, N.T. Wright is saying, no, we're, we're pointing them to this reality that there's a gracious and just God. And God will do what was right. Now, in Genesis 6, did God do what was right? He did. In the scene in heaven, did God do what was right? He did. In the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, did God do what was right? He did. And so at the, this, this is going to sound crass, and I don't mean it to sound this way, but at the funeral of every lost person who passes from this life to eternity, does God do what's right? He does. That's a hard truth to wrestle with. Because where does every person want to picture their loved one? In the presence of God. I have done many funerals where people will come to me and say, oh, we don't believe in God. You know, we don't believe in God. We don't believe in God. And then at the funeral, where does that person who died automatically end up as the people talk about their loved one who passed? They're in the presence of God now. And it's like, well, you just told me 25 times you don't believe in God. 
But now, now you do believe in God because you want your loved one to be resting in eternity with him. And, and what do you do in those moments? You point them to the reality that God is gracious and just. I often turn that conversation into the thought of, if there's one thing that your loved one would want you to know, I'm not preaching them into heaven and I'm not preaching them into hell, but if there's one thing that your loved one would want you to know, it's this truth, that there are two destinations when you leave this life. And so, so as Peter is, is writing here, we got off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but in the end, it's not a rabbit trail because what is it all about? It's about the wisdom of God, that God knows the righteous from the unrighteous, that God knows those who are his versus those who are not his. It's, it's the story of the, the, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff. All these imageries are images that we see throughout the Bible that there is this, this idea of a separation, and that's what Peter's pointing to here, that, that all throughout history, there has been a dividing, that God has a wisdom to understand who are his, and for a believer, that should bring us great comfort, but what also should it do? It should drive us with great fervor. Why? Because there are many in the world who are not his. There are many who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. And so as, as Peter is encouraging them, he, he wants them to understand this reality, and he wants them to move forward from this point uh, with this understanding that God is indeed all wise. And so in verse 9 again, he says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now, in their instance, they weren't necessarily thinking about funerals and loved ones who had passed on. They were thinking about how do we know who is a false teacher and who is a true teacher. And, and Peter is encouraging them to, to seek God's wisdom in these moments. Um, and, and I believe if we ask, God will give that wisdom. As we go on to verse number 10, and then we'll have some discussion if there is any, uh, Peter says this, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, uh, presumptuous are they, self-willed, uh, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Um, <laughs> Peter's uh, assumption of the, <laughs> the false teachers in verse number 10, um, anybody ever fallen into one of those traps? Anybody ever walk after the lust of the flesh and uncleanness? Am I the only one that's going to raise my hand? Come on, people. We all have. So, so he's not painting this huge like, picture. They're, they're going to be the bank robbers and the rapists and, and the human traffickers. Like, oh, we could easily say those are the evil people. Peter, Peter starts with something relatively simple that they walk in the lust of uncleanness. Then he says they despise government. Let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> they're presumptuous. And they're self-willed. And they speak evil of dignities. Hmm. That's a tough list. I don't think I want to talk about that one anymore, right? Let's, let's just move on to something else. Um, and and as, he's, as he's talking about these things, what does it mean? To walk after the flesh or to walk, uh, as he says, uh, in the lust of uncleanness. It is um, revealing this idea that they're almost addicted to themselves. That all they want is what they want. All they want to do is what their flesh craves and what their flesh desires. And certainly we could relate that back to every one of the examples that 
uh, that Peter gave, whether it was the angels who fell from heaven, whether it was the ungodly in the day of Noah, or whether it was the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. They were self-willed. They wanted only what they wanted. They despised the government, the, the government that God had set in place, uh, who, who gave a law for them to follow. They despised those, those civil governments that God had set up. Uh, they were presumptuous, which simply meant they were bold, daring, headstrong, and they had no fear. In our world today, that is an attitude or a character trait that is praised. What does Peter say? That's a character trait of an ungodly person. He says that they're self-willed, um, following their own opinions. No authority can induce them to relinquish their own authority. And then he says they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. They're lawless and disobedient. Uh, they spurn all human authority and speak contemptuously of all legal and civil jurisdiction. And so, so Peter's list here of the false teachers as, as he's defining them here in verse number 10 uh, is a hard-hitting list. And Peter's calling the believers to, to live differently than this. Um, the Lord knows them who are his. And this is not how God's people are to act. This is not how God's teachers uh, will live their lives. Uh, we talked last time about the, the, the s- s- uh, sexual deviation uh, of the false teachers, how they were, were desiring uh, power and authority so that they could fulfill the lust of their flesh in any way uh, that they wanted to. What has God done for these people? Warren Wiersbe says, God has reserved the unjust for special punishment on that judgment. The false teachers may seem successful, for many follow them, but in the end they will be condemned. Uh, Their judgment is being prepared now. It lingereth not, as seen in uh, verse number 3. And what is prepared will be reserved and applied on the last day. What a contrast between the false teachers and the true, true children of God. We have an inheritance reserved for us in 1 Peter 1, 4 because, of Jesus, because Jesus is preparing that home for us in heaven as seen in John 14, 1 through 6. We're not looking for judgment, but for the coming of the Lord to take uh, his people home to glory. For God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as these people were conflicted, as they didn't know who to follow, uh, as they didn't know what was right and what was wrong, Peter was encouraging them in this fact, in this reality, that God knows how to separate them. God knows who are his, he knows who is teaching the truth, and he knows those who are leading people astray. As I started, I, I shared, and I meant to save it to the end, but it fit better in the beginning, uh, but I shared about that, that guy uh, that, um, that we would take teenagers to go see. He preached at our church, uh, in Virginia at least once when I was there. Um, and slowly but surely, you started to see things that, that didn't seem right. And you know what was easy to do in those moments? Yeah, but the rest of him is, is so good, right? Like, well, we might not agree in that one point, but he's a great preacher. And then 10 years down the road, He's, he's completely removed himself from what he once said he believed. He still says he believes that Jesus is the only way to heaven, um, but can I tell you there's a lot of other stuff thrown in with that that would cause us to not want to listen to him. And much of, much of how I would describe him is exactly how Peter describes them in verse number 10. The, the uprising that he led through 
uh, the last couple of years was scary. The, the people that he had eating out of the palm of his hand, it's scary. And they basically lift this guy up as a God himself, willing to do whatever he says, willing to, to go against every civil government that's in their town that they live in. They often talk about how much the, the civil authorities hate them. Well, maybe there's a reason why the civil authorities hate you. And as I think about this passage and I think about this, this man, um, what Peter says about these false teachers seems very fitting. And so this is not something that was just true then, but friends, it's something that is still true today. And so what do we need to survive this? We need the wisdom of God. We need God to, to, to give us insight and enlighten our eyes to see the truth so that we don't fall astray by following one of these false teachers, but we cleave to what the Word of God says and we cling to what the Spirit of God is leading us uh, to do in our lives. Any thoughts on verses 4 through 10 as a whole? Evan. Yeah, no, it's true. And my mind even went to the story of Job. That conflict was still around in, in Job's day, right? They, they're coming and going in some regards to heaven, and, and that's another story that we don't fully understand. Um, but it seems that in some sense, even as they were cast out, they were still given entrance to, to at least speak with God in some way. So certainly something that... Um, that will boggle your mind if you spend time thinking about it. Um, and the point of all that, that, that of what Peter wrote here, uh, in my opinion, is to point us to this idea of the wisdom of God, how, how God can discern and give discernment to what is right and what is wrong, and ultimately we're to follow him. And that's, that's the problem with false teachers is that they often don't point you to Christ as our captain. Who do they point you to? Themselves. Follow me, look at me, listen to me. Um, and that's, that's always wrong. Um, what did Paul say? Follow me. But then what did he say? As I follow him. And so it's not wrong to lead people, but we have to make sure that we're leading them in, in the right direction. And that's what these false teachers don't do. Anybody else? Dave. Yeah. Some of these people who say, hey, here's people who 
Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, I was listening to a podcast, and I'll share, I, I don't remember what it was. If anyone wants it afterwards, I'll share it with you. But it was this guy that came out of um, Christian science, and he was not just a, a, a member of the Christian science movement. He was in the top three of Christian science for over 20 years. And he said it got to the point, and this happened to him, where people would pay upwards of $5,000 to be told to go into a field and run around a pole X amount of times, and that would bring their life back to its center, so to speak. Um, what is that? That's brainwashing, and you're paying people to do it. But what is the whole Christian science movement? It, it's about, in, in some regards, getting to your best you after all these years of being reincarnated through all this different, pro, over this process of time, to, to, to be your best version of you. It's, it's like every other model of religion, to be your best version of you. We don't have a best version of us, right? We need somebody to step in on our behalf to make us new because we could never be good enough. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ. And so that's who we follow. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that we serve. Anybody else? A couple more thoughts. Well, they have their own writings, right? That I, I don't remember the guy who started it, but they, they've got their own set of writings. And, um, but the, in the podcast, they were talking about that very thing of, like, how do you get people to go from not believing to willing to pay $5,000 to run around a pole? And they said it, it, it's all with small buy-in. And so he said this guy, the person who started it, whoever it was, had an answer for everything. You wanted to know how to wash your windows better, well, you go to this guy and he'll tell you. And so you start believing him in the small things, and then before you know it, you, you'll, you're just eating out of the palm of his hand to believe the big things. And, and honestly, if you look at cults as they've come about throughout history, that has been um, one of the ways that they've often had a following. Something else. Mm. 
Oh, that's great. And, and that's the reminder that, like you said, we see throughout the Bible because all of the great heroes of the faith, the majority of them had some major downfalls in their lives. And what does that point us to? That it wasn't them who did it. It was God who was working through them. Uh, and his, his wisdom in life is far better than our own. Anybody else? Judy, did you have your hand up? Yep. Yeah. I, I've sat with a lot. When, when uh, I preached one of my first funerals, it was in a room of probably 500 people, and I was nervous, and it was my, um, my brother had part in it, and then Pastor Lake down in Barry, he had part in it, and uh, this, the guy that passed away had no fruit of salvation in his life, and we were getting ready to go out, and both my brother and I were beyond nervous. I mean, we were still, um, well, we were fresh out of college at that point. And Pastor Lake said words of wisdom, and I think I shared them earlier, but just so you understand the context of them, um, he shared with us, he said, boys, when you, when you preach, and he could call us boys, because we were still boys at that point. And he was our pastor, so he can call us whatever he wants, right? Not really. Um, but he said, boys, whenever you preach a funeral, and, and you don't know, there, there's no fruit of salvation, he said, you never, never preach him into heaven. Um, because that's going to do more damage than it does good sometimes, because people think they can live any way they want and, and get to God. He said, but you also don't have to preach them into hell. You, the funeral's not the place to do that, in my opinion. I'm not going to get up there and say, your loved one is burning for all eternity, right? That, that's probably going to turn everybody off, and nobody's going to listen to a word I have to say after that. But what can I preach in that moment? I can preach the hope of Jesus to people who are hurting. And so I don't, I don't have to talk about where your loved one is. Because like Judy said, and as we said earlier, I don't, I don't fully know. But as I said earlier also, I know that God is going to do what is just in those moments. And we can leave that up to him. But in that moment, people are looking for comfort. But we can't comfort them falsely, right? We have to comfort them with the truth and, and point them into the direction of, of looking to God for the answer. Anybody else? We have, we have gone over. It's been good discussion. Anybody else? All right, let's close in a word of prayer. And uh, let's seek the wisdom of God.